Place Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zaffaro, and we are going to talk to Eric Pruitt today. I'm uh, coming at you from Central Oregon on a very windy day with uh, two dogs and a cat flying co-pilot with me here in the study, so uh, hopefully you don't hear too much from them throughout the show. Uh, before we get to Eric Pruitt, a very interesting guy from East Texas, let's hear from uh, the sponsor of the show, Wrong Place Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books, and here from Down and Out Books is Eric Campbell, chief editor and publisher. Yo, Frank, this is Eric from Down and Out Books. October's a big month for us. We've got 12 killer books coming out this month. It's just a real short short list of what uh, what you can expect. Trevor Galloway is back in Record Scratch by J.J. Hensley. As you might recall, Trevor was introduced in the well-written and well-received Bolt Action Remedy from 2017. Well, now Trevor has a new case and a new gal and a ton of new problems. Jennifer Hillier, the author of Jar of Hearts, says this is a thriller that crackles from the first page to the last. We're also publishing a nonfiction book in October, Pulp According to David Goodis is a novel by Jay Gertzman. This is a critical analysis of Goodis's work, including his Hollywood scriptwriting career, his use of Freud, Arthur Miller, Faulkner, and Hemingway, his obsession with incest, and his noble loser's indomitable perseverance. These books are available for pre-order now. Find out more at downandoutbooks.com. And Frank, as always, thanks so much for your support and asking me to come on the show. Thanks, Eric. Uh, now let's turn to our interview with Eric Pruitt. Eric expresses himself creatively through a variety of different mediums, including novels, short stories, film, uh, and a nonfiction podcast. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's got a cool accent, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say. Let's meet Eric Pruitt. Uh, hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Frank. You, you got the True Crime Podcast. You're a crime fiction author, short story author as well, uh, but you're also uh, a, a filmmaker. Yes, sir. Uh, and so uh, do those different pursuits, do those feel like all parts of the same whole to you, or are they all very different? Uh, I feel like they're they're, based, they're they're different, but they're the same. Uh, I like to classify myself as a storyteller. And sometimes when you're looking to tell a story, it doesn't quite fit in one medium. And so you end up looking for another, you know, for example, the with the long dance, which is the eight part podcast about the 1971 North Carolina Valentine's murders. As we were looking into that, since there wasn't a definitive ending yet, it just didn't make that much sense to be a novel. We originally approached it to be like some kind of deep dive, perhaps like investigative piece that might be three or four articles long. But as we got deeper and deeper into it, we just felt there was so much more story in it that it it almost couldn't be confined to that kind of format. And then plus, since we were getting audio interviews and you could hear the pain in some people's voices, I don't think I had the skills to properly translate that. So as we kept as we kept researching, it became so obvious that was a podcast. In other instances, you can see something so visually that it feels like it belongs on the screen. So sometimes I just like to see what the story is and where where we can do it the best service. Let's start with the film. I did a little bit of uh, perusing on your website there. It's very well put together and easy to navigate. So if anybody has an interest to go in there, uh, it, it's, it's a good place to get lost for a few hours. I think my wife, Lana Pierce, for that. She did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did a fine job. Uh, one of the films that jumps out right away that's on there, uh, because it was an award-winning film, was your film Foodie. Uh, without giving anything away, I, what what inspired you to, to, to do a film about you know food people? <laughs> I uh, was a restaurant professional for, I mean, for, at the time, over half my life. So I had spent nearly, uh, you know, 15, 20 years running restaurants, uh, general man, you know, I was everything from the waiter to the general manager to run, you know, 
Uh, the last job I had, I ran it for five years, and I just felt like it was eating me from the inside out. So uh, there's probably no better description of that film, Foodie. is an underground is a a restaurant professional finds himself invited to an underground exclusive dinner party and finds out there's much more on the menu than he bargained for. The script was making people laugh, so everybody's like, "You got to get it done." So we raised uh, it's four grand on Kickstarter, and then just. And then just went to town, got very, very lucky with 10 of the most talented actors I've ever met. And next thing you know, we're entering it into film festivals, won 16 of them. And that was pretty much the beginning for me in the creative world as far as getting things done. I'd always done something, but I'd never gotten it published or produced until Foodie. And so that got the ball rolling for me. There's an advantage there for you, too, when it comes to your new books that they're coming out, is you have the ability to produce a decent book trailer. I think so. The first one, we had a book trailer for uh, Dirtbags, my first novel, and Nick Carner just said, hey, man, you talk. I'm going to put it together. I'm going to make you something. And that and what he got me was great. I loved it. The second time around, I really got to kind of practice some of my chops for the hashtag book trailer and uh, where we had two actors get together. We rented a shitty motel room. Like uh, I've done ride alongs with the police and they scope out this motel. It's that bad. So we got one of these uh, motel rooms, gave it some production value and had these two actors do it. And of course I narrated the over thing. The cool part is that there is a website called book reels. They actually take a look at book trailers. Well, they put my book trailer for hashtag up against the book trailer for the Aziz and sorry book. And at the end, when they give their uh, analysis, we kicked a C's as Ansari's ass. And so I was really, really happy about that. They said ours was better. So uh, I, I pat myself on the back for that one. Are you going to do one for townies? I have one in mind. Uh, I'm trying to scrape together a couple bucks and see if I can get it done in time. But I have one in mind. So if I can do it, it will be a lot of fun. And I think I, I think we get some laughs out of it. Uh, townies is coming out as October the 16th. Uh, it is my very first short story collection. Before I was able to write novels, I was fortunate enough to get some of my short stories published and I did that for a good long while. So I had like, I think 30 short stories published before my first novel came out. Um, and not to wax too philosophic. I have always thought that like, for me, the definition of a good writing career based on everybody that I love to read, you know, Flannery O'Connor, William Gay, Daniel Woodrell, you know, one thing they all had in common was that aside from their novels, they all got a short story collection. And I know conventional wisdom these days say, well, no, short story collections don't sell. And part of me is like, well, I don't care. I want one because all my heroes have one. Um, so I was really fortunate that Jason Pinter over at Polis really helped me put this together because he knew how bad I wanted one. And uh, so finally, my first short story collection comes out. And in my opinion, I, uh, I, uh, I get to join the big boys now. Well, let's talk about what kind of stories those are. I noticed on your website you use the term Southern Noir. Yes, sir. Uh, w- would you say a majority of your stories and novels fall into that category? Uh, yes. What is that then? How does that differ from noir in general? I think traditionally a lot of noir stories just seem to take place in urban environments. There's a couple of exceptions, but most of the things that are just normally classified as noir take place in the city. A lot of my stories will take place in more rural environments because that's where I grew up. That's kind of where, I, you know, it's the setting that's most familiar to me. And then plus it's what interests me. And then uh, I don't know if anybody can tell from my voice, I am Southern. That's where I, I currently live. I, I live in Durham, North Carolina, but I'm from East Texas. So I think that you can take a lot of the noir themes and apply them to the South. In townies, it's separated into two parts. The first part, most of the stories take place in East Texas or the action happens to East Texans. In the second half, the world in my novels, it, it takes place inside of a fictional southern town called Lake Caster. And so the short stories just kind of explore that town a little further. Where's Lake Caster at? It's a Virginia mill town where the mill has, has moved away. So it's basically on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. I'll read it noir at the bar a lot. And one of my favorite stories to read is about a Texan that uh, wakes up and finds himself homeless in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, 
he's forced to do whatever he can for money and well this turns out to like do some bare knuckle boxing for knacker tapes and if you're not familiar with knacker tapes for uh those are videotapes that circulate that feature hobos fighting so uh -huh. this texan finds himself fighting the infamous knacker fighter named ballsy and uh it doesn't go quite <laughs> the way he has it planned and I always got a good reaction from that story. And people will always ask me afterwards, they're like, hey, where do we find this story? It's called Knacker. Where do we find Knacker? And I'd have to tell them, well, you can't find it anywhere. I wrote it specifically for to read out loud at Noir at the Bar. Well, now finally I can tell them where they can find Knacker. It's available in towns. Coming out October 16th. October 16th from Polis Books. As long as we're on short stories, uh, I noticed you were a Derringer finalist. Which story was that? It's called Knockout. I got it in uh, the uh, Out of the Gutter, you know, the outfit that Tom Pitts and Joe Clifford run. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that was a big surprise to me. I got the email notification one day. I was like, what? So for people who don't know, the Derringer Award is given by the Short Mystery Fiction Society. And there are a lot of nominations, but those are read blind by uh by, by judges. In other words, they just get the title of the work and the work. They don't know who wrote it. So to become a finalist, and there's only five in each category, it's completely based on, you know, subjective merit. I mean, but merit nonetheless. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, the guy who won that year, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's Joseph Dagnes. Um, Dagnes. He apparently wins like all the time. So he's like the Meryl yeah. Street. So yeah. basically, I got beat by the Meryl Streep of short fiction. And Joseph, if you're listening, I just called you Meryl Streep. Your move. Uh, I was very happy. I've got the little email notification framed and hanging on my wall in the, in the hallway. So I was stoked. Well, it's, it's definitely, I mean, if they can say Academy Award nominee so-and-so for losing, at the Academy Awards than we can say Derringer finalist for losing at the Awards. Dude, I'll take nominee and finalist anytime. I just did the Balshacon. We got uh, where we finally got to meet face to face. And I was privileged to be an Anthony nominee. And everyone would ask me, Are you are you nervous? Are you you know it's like no, I'm in there with I'm in the category of Lawyer Raider Day and Jim Ziskin. I'm not gonna win. So therefore, I don't have to worry about coming here and winning. <laughs> I just have to come here and enjoy being a nominee, which let me tell you, that was that was fun. They treat you right. What that was the category you were nominated in? Best Paperback Original for my third novel, What We Reckon. Who ended up winning in that category? Do you remember? Lori Raider Day. No surprise. She's a she's a beast. Would you call her Meryl, Meryl Streep, too? Uh, or she, she the Robert De Niro? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm scared of Lori Raider Day. I ain't calling her nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I call it yes, ma'am. That's what. Yes, ma'am. I ain't messing with her. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's move into some of your uh, novels since we've been talking short stories. And you you mentioned what we reckon was up for an award. All your novels are southern noir as well, correct? Yes. Two uh, lifetime grifters come, that arrive overnight into East Texas with a King James Bible, a hollowed out King James Bible that's been stuffed with a kilo of cocaine. And the two of them have to move it. Uh, unfortunate for both of them, they have uh, each started to tire of one another. And they're both possibly starting to lose their minds. So we have these two people that are just getting kind of frayed at the ends. The man, Jack Jordan, or since it's his assumed name, Jack Jordan, he's uh, having severe anxiety. And he's got his own little mess of problems. And his partner, Summer Ashton, uh she's uh she's got some yeah she's got some mental issues all her own so the two of them have to navigate this new east texas drug world it's it's a family book <laughs> I, I i got the feeling from the trailer that hashtag was a bit of a family oriented book as well manson family <laughs> <laughs> so in the trailer uh it takes place in a motel room and why don't you uh, why don't you tell us what happens in the trailer from there? Uh, in the trailer, uh, what happens is this girl, Sweet Melinda, throughout the book, the, the book itself, it, it 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 starts with the story of Odie Shanks, who is a pizza manager uh, out in Lake Caster, which is in Virginia, but all he wants to be is a movie star. And so he finds himself hooked up with a career criminal, and they're going to get who's going to take him to Hollywood so that he can audition to be a movie star to pay their way 
they're going to rob gas stations on the way to get there. And then hilarity ensues. It's the, the novel also tells the story of Roy Raines, who is the lazy Lake Caster deputy assigned to investigate the kidnapping of Odie Shanks. And the third part is tells the story of Melinda Kendall, who is a uh, she's a recovering speed freak who's just knocked out her boyfriend and stolen his drugs. And she's on the run from him. All three of these stories converge. And in the trailer, it's the section of Melinda Kendall where she's trying to get, she's trying her hardest, but life's just kind of getting in the way. So uh, she finds herself taking hostage, a shady wine salesman. How about Dirtbags? What's, what's that novel about? Uh, Dirtbags is about a guy who wants, you know, when he grows up, he wants to be one of the most prolific serial killers in, in you know, in, in history. And he has been... Uh, hired by a shady restaurant dealer to kill his ex-wife. Uh, the shady restaurant dealer wants it done quiet, but our hero, Calvin Cantrell, he don't do anything quiet. Not if he wants to get famous for it. So all sorts of fun ensues from there. So all of these characters that we've just heard about, these are some pretty dark, pretty twisted, pretty messed up people. Are those the only kind of characters you write, or do you have the upstanding Dudley do rights uh, that are in, in, in there as well? You know, if there's a Dudley do right, they just don't make it very long so far in these books. Yeah, why am I writing dirtbag, twisted characters? You know, they say write what you know. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of been my history. One advantage, one distinct advantage I've had from working with uh, working on the long, long dance has been my access to law enforcement. I didn't really have that before. Any police officers I knew at the time weren't ones, um, you know, they're still fitting, they're still fitting the previous category. So the advantage for the last two years of working tightly with the Orange County Sheriff's Office on this 47 year old cold case has shown me something different, you know? So now it would allow me probably to write better police officers than uh, all of the criminals that I've been writing. I mean, I still write some criminals, don't get me wrong, but I, I, I've enjoyed the uh, the access to the new cast of characters. So I think it's going to allow me, while I love writing about dirtbags and I love making people laugh, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to try my hand at something more procedural and do it my way. You know, like Southern, Noir, Dirty Folk, but still, you know, get to get to use that cast of characters to solve a crime. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We'll get back to our interview with Eric Pruitt in just a couple of minutes, but now is the time for uh, book recommendations on the show. I like to uh, tap into the experts in the field, and by that I mean uh, bookstore owners, bookstore employees, particularly of the independent variety, or uh, other authors and, and readers who uh, can give you an idea of a book you might have missed. This time around, we're going to talk to Linda Bond from Spokane, Washington. Well, hi, Linda. Hi, Frank. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back. What do you have for the listeners out there? Oh, you know, there's some wonderful things. I've got, uh, there's a series out by Thomas Mullen called the Darktown series, and I think they're actually going to do something on TV or have been. Um, and the second book in that has come out. The first one was Darktown, and now they've got out Lightning Men, and this takes place in the south around Atlanta in 1950, and it involves two what they call the uh, Negro officers, Lucius Boggs and Tommy Smith, and uh, of course they're used considerably around the black community down there for crimes that go on. So it's a wonderful book um, if you want to pick up a little bit of history and uh, get in a good thriller read as well. Lightning Men, set in 1950 in Atlanta. It's got uh -huh. uh, KKK in there and everybody. Well, sounds like there'll be lots of uh, lots of action. Yeah, it's for you know not a book for everybody, but um, certainly one if you're into that and a little bit of history. Well, cool. Thanks, Linda. Sure, glad to do it. You have a wonderful uh, podcast.
Thanks, Linda. Uh, as always, uh, great advice. Uh, book sounds very interesting. Uh, incidentally, uh, last month, Trey Barker uh, recommended the first book in that series. Um, so uh, there must be something to it. All right, let's uh, get back to our interview with Eric Pruitt. Let's turn to uh, something that we've touched on already in this interview, and that is The Long Dance. I think that's one of the that's a work that's clearly been dominating your your time and your psyche for a while now. For those who aren't familiar, what's it about? It is eight episodes long, and we are dealing with North Carolina's Valentine's murders uh, from 1971. And what that is, out here in Durham, North Carolina, a nursing student and her boyfriend left a Valentine's dance at the uh, at the hospital, and to go make out down a their lovers uh, down a lover's lane, and then they were never seen alive again. Uh, their bodies turned up two weeks later. By a surveyor found them marking a property line in the woods, and their kill they had been tortured, strangled, and then covered with leaves. Their killers never been publicly identified until our podcast. Our podcast took the story, took original interviews with the family members, with original and current investigators, and uh, even with the suspect himself. Major Horn over in Orange County, he uh, agreed to work with us. We had to prove ourselves to him, but he did agree to work with us. And he gave us one mandate. He wants us to investigate all three of the suspects that they had never been able to rule out since 1971, investigate them equally so that we uh, don't pick on any one person. And he also, the goal of it was to kind of shine a light on this case, which had been kept secret for so long. Uh, we do name the three suspects. We did interview one of them and, uh, and we did get DNA to be analyzed. Let's start at the beginning there. There's a lot of unsolved murders uh, throughout the country and throughout North Carolina, I'm sure. Why this one? This one happened around the corner from my house. Like uh, I'm sitting here right now looking out my office window and you know, if I were to walk out the door in two miles, I'll be from, I'll be where they were abducted. And then I go two miles the other way and I'll be where their bodies are found. So, you know, the landmarks of this case like populate my everyday life. The, you know, it, just how, how accessible it was to me was compelling. But the other, most, ma the major one, the most, the most predominant one is that there was so little information about it. I mean, think about it. If you hear that around the corner from your house, two lovers were abducted from a lover's lane and then found tied back to back to a tree and had been strangled, you're th the first thing you're thinking is, oh, that's a serial killer. And the second thing is, what happened when they caught the guy? Well, they never caught the guy. There was never another pair of kids found tied to a tree, so the serial killer thing wasn't there. But there's no information. So how can something like this happen that's so tragic and you just don't hear anything about it? It's not in the newspaper, you know? Uh, what was going on? So every time I turn the corner on anything in this story, the questions why 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 were never answered i don't know it just got me it just got me worked up every time you talk to somebody you just see these people that were like it's like nobody cared they quit talking about it they quit asking questions it's just like they didn't care about these kids and i just thought that was almost a greater tragedy than these two kids losing their lives was that they lost it and no one was talking about it so i had to know i had to know more answers and you didn't go on this journey by yourself. You have a partner in crime, pun intended. Who's that? Drew Adamek uh, was uh, is an investigative reporter. Uh, he's from Chicago and then just moves around. Uh, so he had just come. Uh, he had just moved to Durham from Serbia uh, at the time. And uh, this is, you know, being an investigative reporter, he just digs up these stories and then looks into them. He wanted a partner. I had just written something for the local paper, and he saw it. Looked me up on Twitter and saw I was into crime and just approached me. He's like, let's find something. Let's find a story we can work on together. Our task was to each find five stories that interested us enough to look deeper. And then we were going to meet again for coffee in a week. Man, I, I found this one. I didn't need another one. I saw this one. I came to him. I was like, I don't care what you got. Tell me it's better than this one. And we all agreed. This one was, this one was the one to look into. It was never an easy one. But uh, in my opinion, it's been the most rewarding. We also work with Piper Kessler, who's a sound engineer, one of the best sound techs this side of the Mississippi. And she's the one that put everything together for us, made it sound the way it does. 
and Mike Rollin designed our music score that we use. He does the music for just about all my films. There's the divisional labor for, for them. What was the divisional labor between you uh, and... Uh... Drew Adamant. I wrote the episodes. Uh, we both did the research. He was really, really good at like, you know, going to City Hall and getting official records. Uh, me, I found out, I didn't know I was good at this, but I found out I can track people down. Uh, it's, you know, we're dealing in 1971, so you know, Google wasn't around. There was no Facebook. Uh, that's how we will find people these days is social media or Google. But these folks, man, it was hard, but it was, it was fun. You know, you're finding people that didn't want to be found or people that have passed away or people that are in nursing homes or changed their names or whatever. So I didn't know I had that. So that was a, that was a treat. But I did, I did write all of the episodes. How long have you worked on The Long Dance? I mean, you're still working on it technically right now, right? Absolutely still working on it. We've been on it for two years. So we started in about October, late September of 2016. The episodes are, are you know, really uh, structured in a way that's very accessible. Thank you. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't listened to seven or eight yet, so I'm a bad host. I'm, I'm in six. Uh, but it, uh, you give the background of the case, of the people mostly, uh, and then you get into the background facts of the case, and then you actually spend one complete episode each on the three primary suspects. So it's well-structured in, in, in that regard. So as you went through this, as you're putting this together, what were some of the technical challenges that you came up against in, in presenting this in a podcast format as opposed to like Ann Rule does it in, you know, strictly on the page or Biography Channel does it on TV where you can do subtitles and, you know, and I mean, what, what were some of the technical difficulties that you ran into? You know, since it is a podcast, everything is reliant on sound. So, you know, not only do we have to record our own voices, but we have to get the story told. In some cases, but luckily, since we had Piper Kessler, we didn't have to worry about technology. She could just get it in there. Everything since, you know, we're going by the journalism rules, which Drew was, uh, which was Drew was there to teach me what, you know, half the, you know, hey, Eric, you can't do that. That's illegal. Um, which turns out I, I, there were a couple of things I did that, um, anyway, anyway. <laughs> but there were instances where we had to be a little bit more clandestine with certain characters in getting some of, you know, but we're getting these interviews from people and people are talking. There were twice that the only place that these people would meet us. Cause remember, you know, we're meeting some of these women, these nurses that had someone taken from them violently from their life. And for the longest time, they thought that they were next. You know, no one knew if this was somebody preying on nurses because, you know, the uh, Richard Ramirez had happened around the same time, Night Stalker, you know, no one knew if this was a thing. Uh, so the spec was pretty much yep. around that time too, wasn't it? Yeah, he's 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 the Chicago guy that did nurses, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this it was exactly around that time. So people didn't know if this was another thing that was gonna happen uh to them. So fast forward forty five years later and here's us on the phone. We don't know you, we're calling you out of the blue, and we want to talk to you and meet with you and talk to you about this event. And so understandably people were it was hard. It was hard. So if you meet them, you got to meet them in a public place. Where that public place will be, we'll probably be in a restaurant, and the restaurant's got the music playing over. Uh, one thing I found interesting that Piper could do is she took this the audio file we had where we're in interviewing this this person, and in the background you hear like "Sweet Home Alabama" or you know Peter Frampton or whatever is being piped over the uh, intercom system, and we can't have that because of rights issues. We're going to have to pay Peter Frampton. We're going to have to pay the Eagles. So what she was able to do was go in there and remove that music and replace it with the sound of forks scraping a plate or whatever, which I didn't even know you could do. What I was told, it's the equivalent of getting an omelet but taking the egg out after it's been cooked. And she did it. So that was one where we succeeded. But, you know, touching back on what you were talking to, yes, when we interviewed our prime suspect, I had I would have five listening devices on me and a GoPro camera. Uh, we were told he would not participate, but we did get him to talk to us and we recorded it. One party state. You talked about that at uh, VoucherCon. I actually attended the panel you were on uh, about podcasting and uh, I took a couple of things away from that. Uh, the first one was a funny story you told uh, 
that maybe you could share with the listeners? There was one person who was the was ground zero for bringing this case together. He was nearly abducted by the prime suspect in 1973, which was two years after the murder. If this guy had not identified this person and his near abduction, if he had not you know, written down the license plate, called the police, identified him in a photo lineup, it's very likely that our number one suspect would have never been attached to this case. So his actions were absolutely important, and it was vital that we that we talk to him and that we get him on tape. He would not return our messages, our phone calls. So one day, Drew and I just decided, you know what? It's, a, it's an hour drive. Let's just drive out there and go knock on his door and talk to him. We knock on his door. He is visibly upset. He opened the door, was, was very agitated, was very angry, and demanded we leave his property. Uh, we did. He followed us out, still yelling at us. He demanded that we tell him, you know, that we talk to him further. You know, after kicking us off, we turn around, we stop, we talk to him. After a minute, we managed to kind of calm him down. And then he decides, you know what? I don't want my neighbors seeing me out here yelling at two reporters. Why don't y'all come inside and let's talk, you know, in private? And so we agree. We're thinking this is great. Maybe we can get him to go on tape. We get inside his house and right as soon as he lets us in, I hear the door locked behind us. And at that moment, the same time, I look forward into his living room and I see that there is only one couch as furniture. And the other only other thing inside his house is a six foot tall cage. Um, I'm told later that he keeps cats in it. But why it's a six foot tall looking monkey cage, I have no idea. But all I thought in my head as soon as I saw that was I, I didn't tell my wife where I was going. You know, I'm pretty sure we were just sitting at coffee and we just got the grand idea to drive out here and visit this guy. So I'm pretty sure Drew didn't tell his wife where he's going. And I'm trying to do the math in my head on how long it would take my wife to realize, A, I'm not coming home. B, where I possibly could have gone. And there's no way she would have known. Would she have called Major Horn and they would have, how long would it take them to suss it out? You know, that, oh, well, maybe they went out to go visit this, this fella. You know, how long am I going to be in this monkey cage with Drew uh, before <laughs> they figure it out? And, you know, we interviewed the main suspect who, if he is guilty of these two murders, he hasn't only murdered people, but we go on to prove that he has behaved very violently. You know, he is a very violent and destructive person. Uh, and we interviewed him, and I was still nowhere near as scared as I was when I was sitting next to that monkey cage trying to pretend like we don't even notice it. You know, uh, we're just having this conversation with this clearly agitated man. So that was that was exciting. That was that was exciting. The, the other thing that really struck me on the uh, panel, I didn't realize you're such a funny guy. Um, you mean like a clown? Into... It's a clown. <laughs> no, I mean, like you, you, you make me laugh, you know. Uh. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, uh, you know, uh, talking to you. Uh, having conversations with you you're 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 a pretty funny guy and yet up there during the panel when you're talking about the long dance when you're talking about the victims and the family and the suspects and the cops and and everything you know your demeanor's extraordinarily uh professional and 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 somber and and it was just an interesting uh contrast there to see you able to be very professional very uh serious and then uh you know 10 minutes later away from that be able to you know switch gears and, and, and be able to crack jokes and be be jovial. I was very fortunate to get to work with the family of the victims on this. And I know previously working in, you know, in fiction or in film, you know, we're taking these characters and we kill them. And sometimes the murder is funny or, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a plot device to get us a little further into the story. Um, in this, in this case, you know, uh, these, these were two kids and they had family and they had friends and I've been fortunate to be able to speak to each of them. And it's one of the reasons we, we decided it had to be a podcast because you, you just, I don't have the, like I said, I don't have the words to communicate the pain that I hear from these people. Every one of them, every one of them without fail would cry. It, there would come some point in the interview where they was, they would start crying. And uh, even some of the investigators, and so this was a very serious, I mean, it's, it's, you know, any murder in real life, of course it is. But I mean, just to hear that, you know, 47 years later, this one investigator, this is what he thinks about before he goes to sleep. 
it's the one crime in his entire career that he wasn't ever able to solve and he thinks about it and i know in a, in a fiction book that's a cliche but like when you hear this man talk about it and this man went on to great you know he went on to do great things outside of law enforcement but this is this is what he thinks about you know uh working closely with tim horn you know he extended his career he he he, he was supposed to retire a few months ago and he ex he put off his retirement because he wants to possibly bring this thing home and you see what this does with people and i don't ever want to be something that does someone or that doesn't take that that doesn't take that seriously right now as i'm sitting at my desk i'm looking at a picture of pat and jesse on my wall uh it was my screensaver the entire time i was writing it because i just never wanted to forget that that's what this is about this is two people whose lives were cut short and they were two people full of promise mm -hmm. and they didn't get to live that promise it was absolutely senseless and the more and more we get into it the more and more we start to see more details about that night they were taking you just it didn't have to happen you know it didn't have to happen mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's uh that's that's been kind of the gut punch you know i like to laugh i like to take a look at everything and find the funny part of it just because we got enough things in our everyday world to keep us there i like to laugh but no that is one that is one thing that i, I you know i don't find any humor in. 47 years later these families are still hurting because of, because of something that some asshole did we're hoping to see him get justice for it that's the big piece there too is that there was never justice brought not yet it does sound uh like your podcast uh like the long dance podcast has been instrumental in in moving this case forward and and helping out law enforcement as they're uh, trying to close this case out. But one of the things you highlighted in your podcast that uh, as former law enforcement, I, I knew was going to come up at some point, And that was, you dealt with a lot of police territorialism that, that occurred. Oh man. And that, that actually may have been uh, an Achilles heel in the case that cops from one jurisdiction uh, or one agency weren't talking to their, their brothers and sisters uh, out of a sense of, of, territorialism we call it the tangle of jurisdiction mm -hmm. um yeah 1971 so even if they wanted to communicate even if these agencies wanted to communicate with each other you know it was it was gonna it would be difficult you know just right i was with major horn today um uh you know we, we drove out to take care take care of some case business on this and while i was with him today he gets a phone call from durham police and they have a thing and they want to they want to get some information for him need him to email something over to them to help them with their case and he's on it he does a text real quick and and you know handles it that's how it is now mm -hmm. you know agencies do cooperate with each other a lot better now and they're able to communicate they have the technology to do it back then they did not and back then you know you had territorialism was it was ridiculous six agencies worked on it. What has been the emotional impact of working on the long dance uh, on you personally? Has it, how has it affected you? That's a good question. I kind of prided myself for the longest time in being desensitized. You know, my humor is dark. This is just the way, you know, it's just the way uh, I am. So I'm going to find out the way to be, you know, to, let's, let's monetize this. You, you know, you got a dark sense of humor. Here, working on this, I mean, I've just had... Like I mean, I kind of, I've kind of touched on it a little bit before, but I've just had these moments where you're like, oh, you know, I've never really been touched by a murder, you know, and 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 on working with these people, it's just made me. I mean, it makes me sound like I was really, really uh, dark and absent before, but you know, just working with these people and hearing this story, I think it's just kind of added a, an extra level, uh, for lack of a better word, humanity to it. You know, there was an incident, uh, you know, uh, there, there there was an interview that I had with a woman who was, you know, we talk in the podcast about the Duke Forest incident, which was a similar style assault. And after the podcast, we've received information about that assault and we're able to track down original investigators and able to track down the victims, which is leading us possibly, cross your fingers, to an eventual arrest in doing this i listened to her first person account her first person account of her assault and attempted abduction is probably the closest we'll ever get to hearing to what 
actually happened to Pat and Jesse that night. And when I heard her account of it, I remember feeling like there was no, there, no food in my stomach whatsoever. There was a lump in my throat and I had to take the tears out of my eyes. I wasn't crying, but my eyes clouded up so much with water that I couldn't even see and I had to remove them. And I haven't had that feeling just listening to somebody else's story before. It was that profound. It was that impactful. And I remember at the end of it, she told me, I've only ever told this story three times in my life. Once to the police the day after it happened, once at church to my pastor, and now this third time to you. I, it's still, to, you know, it's still one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. So I've been touched by that. I've been privileged to get to hear these stories. These people open up to me and tell me these stories. And to say that the impact has been profound is just, I, you know, it's, it's an understatement. That's putting it very, very lightly. It seems like these uh, uh, family members and, and even from the other end of the spectrum, law enforcement, both trusted you and your partner, uh, Drew, on this project. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're putting some stock into you. They're putting some trust into you. There's a great deal of, uh, I don't take that lightly. And, and clearly you don't. And, and, and I think that's, uh, I think that's admirable. Um, it's very evident throughout the podcast and how seriously and how reverently you treat the subject matter and the people involved. Uh, and you know, and I, I, I know that some people talk about the journalistic distance and so forth, uh, in, in, in reporting and, and, and talking about nonfiction events, but I think that making that human connection that you described, uh, it translates into the work and that allows it to be more accessible to the listener and to the reader. So, uh, uh, so I, I commend you on it. You've been working on the long dance, uh, with, with Drew for a couple of years and, and with your, your crew. Uh, but talking with you today, you're still working on this case, and, and the case is actually still moving forward. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yes. Uh, with episode eight, we were on the cusp of a DNA result. We, uh, you know, we had helped uh, acquire DNA profiles and had gone to help get DNA, uh, a DNA testing, some DNA testing done on this 47-year-old piece of rope, which was not going to be easy. We hoped that there would be an answer, which would lead to an arrest, and it just wasn't the case. They weren't able to get enough DNA off the rope. They were able to get to tell that there were three profiles on it, a male and a female, who you can assume would be the victims, and then another male, who you would assume would be the killer. So they've got those profiles, but it just wasn't enough to make a match. And so it's, it seemed like we struck out. We released the podcast, and then as soon as the podcast is released, uh, we were very humbled by the numbers. You know, the the, num the amount of people that it reached, and especially in this area, and one of the people that was reached was a former investigator who had uh, investigated a similar style of assault in the same area the following year, 1972. The one major difference in the two crimes were in 1972, two people escaped. They got away. And we were able to track them down and we got them to tell their story and we got them to share a composite sketch that they had drawn in 1972. And we basically, I believe, got the story of Pat and Jesse's last night when we got their story. Now, that's how Horn is planning to pursue it now. It's just the same as, you know, nobody got Al Capone on murder or racketeering. They got him on tax evasion. So Horn's approach is he's going to fully pursue the 1972 incident. And if that's what he can get our number one suspect on, then everyone can. Everyone will take it. They'll be like, he's he's been arrested. He's the one that did 1971, even if 1972 is what he goes down for. So that's where we're at now. The plan is to get the two victims to identify our suspect as the uh, as the assailant, and hopefully that's what it takes to lead to an arrest. So there'll be a. Uh, a ninth episode, do you think, tacked on? My recorder has been active. So I have recorded <laughs> episode. Uh, I have recorded both of the uh, the victims. Old Tim Horn, man, he's a great storyteller. So sometimes he just gets to flossing, and I turn on the recorder because uh, everything he says is gold. So it's been active. I'd say that I would love to be able to give some kind of resolution to this story. L the long dance 
two years of your life. I know it wasn't the only thing that you worked on during that time period, but it certainly was dominating the uh, landscape. Uh, what's next after after this project? What are you working on now? We shot a short film in the middle of all this because every, everything on the long dance, you know, is hurry up to wait. You know, you're always waiting for something. So I'd have gone crazy. So we did shoot a short film. It's called Going Down Slow. I'm expecting it, uh, you know, around, you know, hopefully before Thanksgiving. Uh, it's been shot. It's been done. Everything's done. We're doing sound design right now. And uh, hopefully, you know, it's, it's around Thanksgiving. It's the story of a married couple who's at a crossroads in their relationship who must put aside their differences in order to bury a hobo. Um, so it's, so uh, we're, we're right back to Southern noir then, right? It's a, fa it's a family picture. Uh, so that, uh, that's going to be coming out. Of course I'm writing, uh, every day. So hopefully, uh, I'm writing a thing that we can all be talking about next year. And, and then of course, townies, townies mm -hmm. drops. So I'm hoping everybody gets a couple of slices of Southern fiction. So Townies drops on the 16th of October, looking at uh, going down slow. What are the uh, platforms that people can get going down slow on? Is it going to be on iTunes? Is it going to be where, where, where it will be available? We're figuring that out. It's previously everything goes to the film festival circuit. And then after a year, uh, after it's done everything you can do at a film festival, we just upload it onto YouTube's, uh, YouTube and et cetera. But now I got one of those fancy, uh, fancy agents so we'll see what we'll see we'll see what can happen i have i have no idea but i am going to be doing everything i can to make sure as many people see it as possible obviously you're going to keep writing you're doing that every day um so there'll be more books and stories in the future but uh, how about podcasts do you think you'll do another uh, podcast in the vein of the long dancer was this a uh, a one-off for you i mean this was one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire life uh i could probably write 100 books between now and you know going to glory and still not have something that impacted me as much as working on, you know, the Jesse McBain and Patricia man's story. Can I do that again? You know, uh, I, I, I would absolutely love to and be honored to do it again. Um, I had no idea if it would be a podcast or what it would be, but I just found that this whole investigating and working with all of these different people is such a reward I would love to. I would love to. All right. Well, folks, it's uh, Eric Pruitt, Eric with a Y, Pruitt.com. Uh, he is a storyteller. That is the best way to put it. Books, film, short stories, and the true crime broadcast, The Long Dance. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Eric. Thanks for being Man, here. Thank you very much, Frank. When your business is taking you over to North Carolina, you got to stop in for some barbecue. Holler at me. Well, I have to say, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Eric's a very interesting guy, and uh, the respect that uh, he he shows to the victims and the family of uh, of that double homicide that uh, they examine in the long dance is uh, certainly very uh, admirable. Although I think he's uh, a little bit humble, uh, the reality is that uh, he and Drew... Uh, essentially caught a killer or helped bring a killer to justice. And that's something that some police officers go their entire career without accomplishing. And this was a journalist and a crime fiction author who put their mind to it and uh, and did a great thing. Uh, so I appreciate uh, you coming on the show, Eric. And uh, folks, if you haven't checked out The Long Dance yet, uh, it's an eight-part podcast that uh, is very time very well spent produced really well very interesting and did some good did some good next month uh, on wrong place or right crime have a special treat for you humor novelist christopher moore will be on the show he's uh, not uh, what you would technically call a crime fiction author although his most recent book noir uh, does fall into the crime fiction genre so i guess there's your hook we caught up with chris and uh, asked him some flash forward questions uh, Christopher Moore, what city do you live in now? San Francisco. Who's your favorite writer? John Steinbeck. Favorite movie? Amelie, I guess. Favorite TV show? I can't choose right now. Do you have a nickname? No, I don't. The author guy, I guess. Did you give that nickname to yourself? I did years ago. <laughs> what are you working on right now? I am working on my third Shakespeare-based book with a full character called Pocket of Dog Snogging, based uh, in the world of A Midsummer Night's Dream. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Photography, I guess. 
Favorite sport? Baseball right now. Favorite musician? Springsteen, I guess. Five second advice to aspiring writers. Uh, finish your work. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Barcelona. What's your favorite quote? Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend to the brightest heaven of invention. It's the opening um, by the chorus in Henry V. It's a writer invoking the muse. That one was an easy one because it's up on label tape above the monitor of my computer. <laughs> folks a little bit more than you ever knew about christopher moore who will be our guest on the next episode of wrong place right crime which will drop on november 15th i'd like to thank eric prude for coming on the show and linda bond for her recommendation uh, and of course uh, uh, eric campbell and the folks at down out books for being a great sponsor and uh, most of all i'd like to thank uh, you the listeners who uh, still tune in to this show every month Quick bit of Frank Zafiro news for you uh, on the 1st of uh, October, Closing the Circle, my third book in the Anya series with Jim Wilski came out from Down and Out Books. Also, the first week of October, they announced the novella anthology series that I created and will edit called A Grifter's Song. And I'm pretty excited about that because it's a chance to collaborate with some great authors. You can find out more Down and Out Books. Uh, check it out, A Grifter's Song. So that's it for this month. Uh, talk to you and Christopher Moore next month. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>